Resonance FM is London's only non-profit community radio art station who need your donations to help keep the station and podcasts on air. All the programme makers and all the engineers all work for free to bring you shows as diverse as The Bike Show, The Free University of the Airways, Hooting Yard, Speakers Resonance Corner, FM accepts donations in the form of cheques, credit and debit cards, bank transfers, PayPal and cash. Go to www.resonancefm.com for more details. We also accept hobnobs and tea bags. Your donation means our continued existence. Hi, this is Brent Barber, the founding director of the Bicycle Film Festival, and this is Resonance FM. Ride on until the break of dawn, because you don't stop. Uh uh. That's right, listeners. This is The Bike Show here on Resonance FM, London's only bicycling radio programme and via the podcast, the world's most popular bicycling podcast. Welcome to another week. And um, July is always a different month for me. I don't know about you, but um, things wind down. I try to wind down um, in July, get ready for the summer holidays in August. And one of the ways I do that is by... um, Getting up in the morning as usual and um, getting on my bike, nipping across the river to Covent Garden where there's a uh, news agent that sells quite a lot of international titles from the press and buying myself a copy of L'Equipe and I'll take my copy of L'Equipe to um, a nearby cafe and sit down and have a coffee and read all about Le Tour de France. The uh, coverage in L'Equipe is the best there is. And um, reading it helps me to improve my uh, French comprehension. So, um, killing two birds with one stone. Now, a few weeks ago, I met up with um, a couple of people to talk about the Tour de France and to talk about the particular issue which has been plaguing the Tour de France um, over the last 10, 15 years, the issue of doping. Uh, Not wanting to put uh, a dampener on things, but it is an important issue. And with me to discuss um, the issue of doping in the Tour de France and in pro cycling more general is uh, Lionel Burney, the journalist with Cycling Weekly, their chief Tour de France correspondent, and also uh, theatre director and playwright Roland Smith of Theatre Delicatessen, who has a play just about to start, which is all about cycling and the Tour de France. So I began by asking uh, Lionel Burney to elaborate a little bit on a comment that he'd made in one of his columns for Cycling Weekly, where he said that professional cycling had gone beyond a joke. I asked him what he meant by that. It is beyond the joke because the problem of doping is uh, is not going away. Um, the inability of the governing bodies and the teams and the race organisers to actually get a hold of the problem and change the culture within professional cycling is, uh, is bringing the sport into disrepute on an almost daily basis at the moment. It's almost like the Wild West. You've got some teams that are, that are competing in a certain way and others that really don't have the same regard for uh, an anti-doping ethos. Well, we'll delve into some of those issues um, that you've touched on in, in greater detail in a moment. But, Roland, you're a, a cyclist, a, a fan of cycle sport, and you have written a new play called Pedal Pusher, which is about the human drama of cycle sport and touches on the question of doping. Yes, Pedal Pusher started as an idea to kind of explore theatrically 
the links between uh, sport, theatre, spectacle, drama and the race itself and really began as a, almost a physical theatre exercise. But I think, as Lionel kind of has just illustrated, you don't get very far when you're exploring the Tour de France or professional cycling before you go through the door into this dark world, especially if you're interested in the human stories. I mean, everyone knows the narrative or, or the story that has been, dare I say, created about Lance Armstrong, his recovery from cancer and his great as he says in his own words, the miracle of his recovery and then going on to win the Tour de France, offset by the story of Marco Pantani, who was kicked out of the Giro for doping, and that led really to a decline into his own substance abuse and premature death of a cocaine overdose. And this is the story that we tell. So, Lionel, there is a long history of doping in professional cycle sport, going back to probably the very late 19th century uh, but something changed fundamentally in the late 1980s and 1990s the revolution you're talking about in the late 80s early 90s is is the uh, the introduction of epo which is a, a drug which boosts the production of red blood cells which for an endurance athlete is is you know gold dust um, and at the time that that drug came into cycling it wasn't detectable and so really it was a green light for any uh, anyone who, who wanted to get an advantage to um, to to take it, and even though the percentage gains, you know, if you're talking of you know a, a three or four percent gain over an eighty or ninety hour race, that is significant. And so you ended up with a sort of arms race, really. Um, certain people started taking it. Then once word gets round, more people started taking it. And then before you know where you are, it really is sort of sweeping through the peloton. And anyone who's not making the choice to use EPO in that period in the 90s is at a serious disadvantage and really has no career to, to speak of. I mean, can you describe what kind of advantage blood doping, whether it's EPO or blood transfusions or other kind of blood boosting um, techniques, what kind of advantage that confers onto a rider? The key aspect of boosting the number of red blood cells is that uh, you can transfer oxygen around the muscles much more effectively, much more efficiently, and that leads to a direct increase in power the more powerful you are the easier it is to you know the easier it is to go hard particularly in the mountain stages Um, and then there's the element of recovery if your system is running you know with extra red blood cells in it the 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 ability to recover and get up and do it the following day is a is a lot easier you know you get up the next day and and you you're able to reproduce the same effort a week into the race as you were able to on the, on the first day. And that kind of defeats the whole object of an endurance sports event like the Tour de France. So do you think, Roland, that the riders are the villains in all this or are they the victims? It's very hard to categorise one group amongst the other. I think that, as with most sports, and I mean we acknowledge that cycling isn't the only sport that has troubles with this when you look at the states with uh, steroid abuse in baseball which is kind of coming out it's usually the journeymen it's usually the guys who are earning a good but a living wage on their sport their job that they do and it's about simply staying competitive is a very generous view that you can say to what 60 70 80 percent of the peloton is that these guys just simply need to stay in the race to stay the home Now, that's a very different approach that you would have to say those guys who we allege or have been alleged have been using uh, doping 
to have these huge victories, I think there's almost two stories to tell there, that you have the guys who simply effectively staying in a job, staying competitive, where the argument is, if everyone else is doing it, why should I be penalised for not? Do you buy that analysis, Lionel? I take a harder line in that it's pretty clear what the rules are. When any rider turns professional, they know what they're signing up to. They know that the, you know, it doesn't take long to look on the internet to read the full uh, anti-doping rules that the UCI and the World Anti-Doping Agency lay down. You can, you can read the list of substances and practices which are banned, and you know that as soon as you, as soon as you start. In, in normal life, I'm a libertarian, and I feel that people should be able to make their own choices about which substances they use as long as they take into account all of the various consequences and understand that there's a responsibility that goes with that choice but when it comes to sport I do feel and idealistic though it may sound I do feel that sport should be held as a higher uh, to a higher benchmark simply because the way it is told sold and marketed to the public people are sold these dreams they're told to believe in these idols and if the whole thing is based on performance enhancing drugs then it, it really is you know, a bit of a sham. And so there is this culture of silence in the peloton, the uh, omerta they talk about, um, that people won't talk about, they won't spit in the soup, they won't uh, uh, disparage another rider, even if that rider has been convicted. Um, they'll just, you know, say, well, I don't want to answer any questions about that, um, you have to speak to them. And what's happened to riders who have come out and spoken out? And, and what about those who have been caught but have not really confessed. I mean, we've got various interesting case studies. Do you want to pick we, up on a, a few of those that you find um, well, illustrative? Have, yeah, I mean, I would say one of the first, not the first, but one of the first to break the, break the law of silence is the Irish writer Paul Kimmage, who's now a journalist with the Sunday Times. He wrote a book in uh, when he retired from cycling, prematurely retired, really, um, called A Rough Ride. And it's I, I would recommend anyone who's watching the Tour de France to read it because it gives an insight into the culture and the, the, the pressure that is brought to bear which I was just talking about he was ostracised um, you know, his colleagues and teammates dismissed his, uh, his statements you know, the, the, the classic quote came from one of the French riders who dismissed Kimmage as a typical comment from somebody who was never any good um, Christophe Basson was in the 1999 Tour de France was a French rider who refused to uh, dope but he spoke out about it. He wrote a column in a French newspaper during the tour and the, the pressure became too much for him because the other riders and the other team managers were all having a go at his team manager saying, look, you've got to shut this guy up. This is not, this is not selling tickets. You know, This is not box office for us. Um, and he pulled out of the race and, and, um, and eventually, well, pretty quickly, his career came to an end. The, the problem is that it's, there isn't anybody at the very, very top just making the simple statement, I believe doping is wrong, and I believe that it should not be, uh, you know, it should not be part of the sport. If the people at the very top did that, then that would filter down. The problem is always that it's, the, it's similarly the kind of the middle-ranking riders who do want to make a stance, and there's plenty of them. But imagine that. You're in this... You know, even in the Tour de France, there's 200 guys, and you're kind of making these comments. And you've got to ride next to these people. You've got to share hotel rooms with them. You've got to eat dinner with them. You can only say so much. And I would applaud and support anybody who came out definitively and said, "Look, this is wrong. I'm doing it clean. This is wrong." At the end of the day, you can only talk about what you're doing. You, it's very, very difficult to cast. What about those riders like Bjarne Ries who confessed? 
several years after winning the Tour de France in 1996, I mm-hmm. think was his victory, where um, you know there were strong rumours at the time. Yeah. I mean, he had a nickname, didn't he, Mister Sixty Percent, referring to his um, high uh, blood uh, blood cell count. He confessed. He yeah. handed back his um, yellow jersey. Yeah. David Miller um, was kind of caught and then confessed. Yeah. They're both still involved in the sport. Yeah. Reese is, is he still managing a team? He was he, last year. Yeah, he manages the uh, Saxo Bank okay. team. And Miller is, is racing for... Miller's racing for the Garmin team. We've got the libel police uh, just passing by. Well, I was going to just talk about Bjarne Reese first. Oh, uh, he, he won the Tour de France in 1996. And very soon afterwards, there were rumours and, and pretty strong rumours that he'd been taking EPO quite a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence and documentary evidence came to light um, and eventually um, he was forced really by by the, the sort of closing of the net to come clean and say yes he had taken EPO in order to win the Tour de France. Now what disappointed me about that was that he then didn't say demonstrably I'm now running a clean team you know it, 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 was, it was all about presenting a clean front without actually providing a great deal in the way of um, right, it, I find it totally unacceptable. He, di- he didn't sort of go back and look at his own achievement and say, yeah, you know what, it would have been a lot better if I'd achieved that without having to take EPO. He hasn't said that. And so I find it very difficult that he's still running one of the biggest teams in the world. He's still involved, he's still mentoring younger riders. And I just think that when you, you, you have a certain responsibility, and he more so than anyone, because he effectively made the grand gesture of handing back his Tour de France yellow jersey. For one year only the Tour de France put an asterisk next to his name and and, and actually they erased his name from the list of winners but then they put it back in with an asterisk. The difficulty with that is saying well was that a valid Tour de France win or not? How do we look at that? I personally don't think it was but I I would also agree with Rhys if he were to make the case that his is not the only one that should have an asterisk by it. As for David Miller, yeah, he's um, never tested positive. Um, he was forced to confess to EPO use when police found um, packaging in his apartment in France. Um, the fact that he never tested positive was a pretty damning indictment for the anti-doping, um, you know, the testing procedure at the time. But since his comeback, he has joined a team, an American team, called Garmin, sponsored by Garmin, who are run by Jonathan Waters, and they really are trying to change the culture of, uh, that exists within teams. They aren't just talking the talk, they're walking the walk, I believe. Um, and I've spoken to Jonathan and David about this, um, you know, about the ethos within the team. And so these guys are trying to now do it without, you know, blood doping, without breaking the rules. And I support them in that absolutely wholeheartedly and it would be a good thing if if a lot more of the teams followed their lead and everybody was competing on the same playing field we did joke just then about the uh, the libel police going past um with the siren there there is a lot of litigation did you have to worry about that when you're writing a play about real characters i mean obviously one of whom is uh, passed away and so the the dead can't sue for libel but you've still got um jan ulrich and lance armstrong who are real live people who feature in your play Roland? I mean it's something we're very aware of and it's also something we're very aware of because we don't want to 
as with all you know good drama or good narrative you don't want to take a view or push a view down someone's throat hopefully what you try and do in telling a story like this is give people the information they need to draw their own conclusions or to to understand uh, the reasons or the ambiguities in it the play is based on recreating actual events taking real interviews the text of real interviews or people's own biographies and to be honest there's enough inconsistency from what comes out of people's mouths for you to be able to at least show there's ambiguity here and misunderstanding Lionel do you think that the authorities whether it's the Tour de France organisers the ASO or the um, world governing body the UCI do you think that they are aware of what's going on and aware of the skeletons in the cupboard and do you think that they face a dilemma about what to do I think they are aware yeah they have to be um the, the biggest issue they have is that we're, we're not just talking about what's happening today. We're, we're laced up in 100 years of history, um, the last 40 or 50 of which are, are greatly relevant because those people are still alive. If you start going back and, and, and just trying to find out who was clean who won the Tour de France, I'm afraid we probably have a very, very, very messy story. I don't think there's really any merit in, in picking apart at 50, 60, 70 years of the sport and... and but I do think there is merit in, in having some kind of amnesty and a line, a clear black line drawn. And the UCI has not been strong enough to do that. They've attempted to bring in measures. But th- the problem is that at any given time, you're going to have a peloton of riders, some of whom are first or second year professionals, who may, be easy, you know, who, who may have been brought up in a, an ethical system, uh, who may not yet have been got at by people who... Uh, for whom it is in their interest for these riders to take drugs but at the same time you've also got people who have been a professional for eight nine ten years who who have succumbed or, or for whom it's been normal so how do you kind of separate that out and say here is the line you will not cross it when some of the people are already so far over the line they can't see it anymore i think that's the problem the uci has how to get a hold of it all get their arms around it and just sort of say right you lot this is now the rules because so often in the past in the last decade particularly there have been so many of these kind of no no really this is the time we're going to definitely clamp down on it now no 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 but i know we said it before but now we really are gonna so nobody's taken it seriously and i think that they should at some point and i think the moment was after the 2006 tour de france where floyd landis won the race and then four or five days later it's announced that he's tested positive for testosterone that was the time to say enough really is enough but they didn't do it. They let that opportunity go. And so they're kind of still playing catch-up. But really, it isn't just about detection and, and uh, you know, finding these substances. The ideal is that riders aren't using these substances and techniques in the first place. And that isn't about sort of policing a system. That is about changing a culture. That is about changing the way people view the sport, changing... The, the voices that get into the riders heads that say look look everyone's doing it he's beating you because he's doing this and you're not that's a cultural thing and that's a lot harder to you know affect a change in the evidence from criminal justice studies you know street crime um, and that kind of thing is that it's not the length of the penal sentence that you get the the punishment that you get it's not the amount of punishment that you are liable to get for the crime that deters people from committing the crime it's the chances of getting caught for doing the crime and that's you know if you're talking about muggings or um, burglary uh, that kind of thing what Roland what do you think is 
going on in the minds of um, these riders when they're making that calculation of whether to do it? Do they say to themselves, well, look, you know, so many people have been taking these things. It's pretty rife in the, in, in the peloton. Nobody's getting caught um, or very few people are getting caught compared to the, the numbers who are actually doing it. I'm going to take my chances. I think I think that's I think that's exactly it. As you're, you're talking about taking chances, and it's it's weighing up the consequences with the risk. And I think that, especially when you look back to Bjorn Reis in uh, in his tour win in '96, the only evidence that most people had f- for him doping was the fact that he suddenly seemed so much better than everyone knew he was. And when you turn, uh, I think when you turn a, a donkey into a lion, you start to to ask questions. Again, it's about what's the reward and, and is a two-year ban to a top cyclist really the threat for what the reward will be to take the risk? If we're saying that the lower echelons are, are taking drugs to stay competitive and to stay within a tour and to keep their livelihood, then the threat needs to be equal that if they are caught, that that livelihood disappears. So the decision is much harder. I mean, Lance Armstrong will claim that he, and has claimed, he is the most tested man on the planet. Um, does that need to work through, work through all, every aspect of the sport? And also, one always discovers the drug before one discovers the test. And the two or three year lag, if people are looking for that edge, or it's always going to be a huge temptation to take it, unless, as you said, as you were alluding to before, that you are talking not only simply handing back ceremonial pieces of clothing but significant fines full of past earnings or significant um, repercussions for the sponsors of those teams because I think at the end of the day it's not simply the rider's decision or the governing body to put pressure it's also those who are sponsoring the team jerseys whose names are all over the team cars you know do we ever remember now what Festina makes its core money on or that it was related to the 1998 tour and that smear spreads quite wide and I think that's something we also need to look at when you're looking at making the sport clean and, and honourable again. I mean there does seem to have been some reaction from the sponsors um, T-Mobile pulling out um, other sponsors saying you know we've had enough it's actually bad for our brand the, these these images being flashed up on the news um, with you know riders wearing our jerseys having their heads you know pushed down as they get into the back of the police car I mean it's pretty terrible publicity isn't it? Well it is I mean uh, if I were running a company that was involved in uh, sponsoring a cycling team that's not what I would want to be associated with but I don't know I mean maybe some people you know do take the view that all publicity is good publicity I don't know. Are there any teams or riders that we know to be 100% clean is this sort of biological passport the key to to this holy grail of, of absolute transparency and certainty? I think the biological passport is a, is a big step in the right direction. Well, tell us, tell us what one but, is first of all. Yeah, but the biological passport was introduced um, last year, beginning of last year, um, by the UCI, um, and the the idea of it is that riders, when they are tested, when they are blood tested, those blood the, the values from those blood tests are logged on a biological passport um, to build up a haematological profile of that individual rider. So over a period of time you can detect what is a normal level um, of, you know, what are their normal levels in their blood um, and what is abnormal so that you should be able to spot whether there's been any artificial manipulation either by the use of um, drugs which may not be detected in the test 
because they're out of the system before the, the actual blood test is taken. But the signs are left behind, almost like a footprint, you know, um, or there could be, uh, you know, they look at all manner of things, the age of the cells, um, um, the, you know, haemoglobin levels, so they can detect whether blood has been removed from the system in order to be stored and then used during an endurance event like the Tour de France. So the process of building up these passports, all individual for every rider, I support and I do think it's closing the net on people because it's it's enabling the, the testers to spot anomalies and when they spot an anomaly they are target testing so they're carrying out more tests on people who have got suspicious looking profiles whether it's going to stand up to law and all you know human rights and all this and, and it's sure to come under every single one of those um, challenges simply because the people who want to get away with this will challenge it at every step along the way and they will try to dismantle it and discredit it and keep dismantling it and keep discrediting it but personally i think it's an uh, should be an excellent tool so we've skirted around the big issue i suppose of this tour which is really the the comeback of the seven-time winner of the Tour de France, Lance Armstrong. The, he, he's a dominant figure. Um, he's one of the characters on Pedal Pusher, Roland. What, what do you think about his return? I think it's, it's, it's very interesting on many levels. I mean, we, we uh, if one is feeling generous, then one applauds the idea that he is raising awareness and raising uh, the profile of his charity and, and the disease which he suffered from. Um, certainly we've had a lot of conversations in the rehearsal room about what drives this man forward, what drives this man to keep competing, you know, compared to other cyclists or other sportsmen. Is there something... The question is always asked is, what else is lacking? And there has been a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence of... um uh, doping uh, by Lance Armstrong that has been put into the uh, into the media in various books and uh, newspaper articles. Uh, certainly, many of his teammates from the high period of the U.S. Postal Service have have, have been tested positive, and, and various of his teammates have you know made allegations. Um, people like Jonathan Vouters have come up to the line, but not actually crossed the line of uh, of, of suggesting that there was foul play. But in a very memorable uh, turn of phrase, um, the, the, the blogger Bike Snob New York City, he said that um, for Lance Armstrong to, to come back out of retirement with seven uh, wins to his name and, and, uh, and to compete in, in, in the race this year and to dope would be rather akin to um, someone being the best man at a wedding delivering the greatest ever speech in the history of best man speeches and then 20 minutes later to uh, to piss all over the wedding cake you know the ch- the chances are that he's not doing anything wrong this year right that is a very very difficult question to answer um i don't know um you would have to assume that uh, he is, uh, yeah, he's com- he's complying with all of the rules um, and, and and regulations because, of course, you know, um, he hasn't failed a dope test this year. He's been tested. He'll, he'll tell you on Twitter, I'm sure, how many times he's been tested this year. It's 30, 40, whatever it is. Um, yeah, he he is, uh, you know, he he's he's not red flagged. Uh, um, but you know, what does what does history tell us? Uh, how many other riders? have admitted taking drugs and didn't fail a test or, or, or it took a, a lot of goes to, to, to nail them 
Um, Biani Reese never failed a test. Marco Pantani never failed a dope test, although he did fail the hematocrit check. David Miller never failed a dope test and never failed a hematocrit test either. I think, I think this is the big problem, is that people don't have a great deal of faith in the, uh, in the testing procedures. I, I hope that it's changing with the biological passport. But the problem with Lance's comeback is that there are huge question marks about the first era. Uh, 99 to 2005 and those questions have never been satisfactorily answered and they've been dampened down they've been disputed they've been discredited a lot of these arguments but they still remain and uh, particularly the the piecing together of the evidence by the L'Equipe journalist Damien Ressio who matched the uh, 1999 um, urine samples with paperwork that that matched those those positive EPO's uh, test to Lance Armstrong that was kind of, uh, you know, that is, that's the elephant in the room, really. And I think the biggest problem about Lance Armstrong's comeback, if, if he comes back 2009 and 2010 and wins the Tour de France or finishes fifth in the Tour de France or whatever, and he does so absolutely clean as a whistle, that says nothing about 1999 to 2005. It doesn't suddenly change history or not. It doesn't suddenly mean that there aren't those 1999 samples. It doesn't suddenly mean there wasn't the backdated... Um, doctor's note permitting him to use cortisone in 1999 that's the biggest issue is that i don't know the motivation for the comeback but if the comeback is to come back win and say there we are you know that proves everything it doesn't prove anything well i was talking there with lionel burney of cycling weekly and roland smith of theater delicatessen and roland's uh, play pedal pusher opens in the west end um on Regent Street on the 7th of July and runs until the 1st of August. And um, I think we maybe ought to uh, organise a bike show listener outing for London-based listeners. Um, We'll go for a ride beforehand and end up there. Appropriately enough, the um, play Pedal Pusher is on at um, the theatre at Cavendish Gate, and um, it would be absolutely remiss of me on a, on a programme like this about the Tour de France when we've dwelled on the dark side of, um, of the Tour de France, not to mention Lord Cavendish. That's what I'm going to refer to him. I'm going to refer to him as Lord Cavendish from now on. M- Mark Cavendish, the uh, fantastic um, young British talent uh, wearing the green jersey and uh, to play out for the uh, final bit of the show up to a repeat of One Life Left is... Um, Mark Cavendish's win earlier today um, down there in the south of France. Until next week, chapeau.